Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. About 15 years ago, I took a trip to China. I went on that trip with Liz and her mother. At the time, I perceived Liz and her mother as the quote-unquote typical Christian family. Went to church every week, obeyed the commandments, or so I thought. And I have reconnected with Liz this summer, and she told me what was really happening in her family. It's a very typical story of watching other people thinking, oh, they've got it all put together, when that is not the case at all. It's also a story of Liz's mother, who is unwilling to set boundaries or face the reality of what she was living in. Betrayal Trauma Recovery is interfaith. We have a new coach, Coach Joy, and she is Christian LDS, and I'm very excited to introduce her to you. And the rest of our coaches are of other faiths. At BTR, we have women who are agnostic, we have women who are atheists, we have women who are Catholic and Evangelical and Baptist and Jewish, women from all different faith backgrounds and philosophical backgrounds. You are welcome here. Our number one goal is to get every woman to safety. I appreciate your patience with me when I do share from my own religious perspective. It's simply to share my own story and how I'm feeling. And I honor the choices that you make and your own religious backgrounds. That being said, because Liz is LDS, as she shares her story, there are going to be some terms and some concepts that you need to know about to understand the story. So first of all, LDS congregations are led by a volunteer, and that local volunteer is called a bishop. Every congregation is part of a group of congregations called a stake. There's also a stake president that oversees all of the bishops in the local congregations, similar to the diocese with the Catholic Church, where there's a hierarchy of local leaders and regional leaders and then a worldwide leader. That's how the LDS Church is set up, but it has much different names. And the the names we're going to be talking about today are the local leader, which is called the bishop, and the stake president, which is the man in charge of a group of congregations. The bishop's job is to make sure the congregation works well. So he calls individuals to different jobs within the congregation, and everyone volunteers making sure that the congregation runs well. The bishop also has another job, and that is to judge the safety of individual members. Within the church, there's a system set up for a bishop to interview someone to see if they are honest, to see if they obey the law of chastity, to see if they have any dealings with their family that are illegal or immoral. And if they are not safe, if they're lying to other people, if they're using pornography, if they are cheating on their wife, the bishop is capable of setting limits on that person unless they repent and change their behavior in order to protect the people around them. Every two years, a member of the LDS Church goes in to talk with their bishop and does a temple recommend interview. Now, in the story that Liz is about to tell, she's going to outline how her brother and her father have repeatedly lied to clergy, LDS bishops, and stake presidents throughout their lives. She's also going to talk about how she approached the LDS bishop and the LDS stake president 
in order to attempt to stop the abuse and the infidelity and the porn use and hold her brother and her father accountable. And that was not done. Within the LDS church, there's also a system of accountability. The scriptures say that a witness to them breaking the commandments can go to their bishop or their stake president, and they can have a disciplinary action, meaning they can disfellowship the person or they can excommunicate them or they can put them on probation in order to keep their victims safe and in order to keep their congregation safe, right? You don't want someone volunteering in your church, praying and teaching Sunday school lessons who is at home abusing their wife or who is looking at pornography, or who is committing adultery. So there is a plan in the LDS church to keep people safe. This is a story of how that plan failed and what Liz decided to do about it. Now, our new coach, Coach Joy, is active in her faith. And one of her specialties is helping women who have been traumatized by clergy who should have helped the victim, who should have either reported it to the police or held the perpetrator accountable in some way and failed to do their job. If you have been traumatized by your clergy, I encourage you to schedule an individual session with Coach Joy. I am active LDS and Joy is active LDS. And you can totally be completely active LDS, standing for truth and righteousness, and also acknowledge that some victims are further harmed and not protected by culture in general, by police, by clergy of all different denominations. And so that's what we're talking about today. I didn't ask Liz during this interview why she did not report the sexual abuse going on in her family to the police. So I don't have an answer for you now, but if you are in this situation and you're wondering what to do, and there is a crime that has been committed, sexual abuse, someone has taken pictures of you without your permission and they have posted it on the internet, other various crimes, I recommend that you report it. It's extremely important to report crimes. Now, the consequences of that reporting may be dire. For example, when I went to the doctor to see if my hand was broken and the doctor called the police and the police went to my house and arrested my ex. I did not expect that consequence and I was surprised. It helped me greatly. In order for someone to truly repent, they do need to feel the true consequences of their actions. You're already feeling the consequences of their crimes. Now they need to. So I just want you to keep that in mind as we talk about this today and that I'm not exactly sure why Liz didn't report, but this is the type of scenario where reporting is very important. So without further ado, Liz, welcome. I'm the youngest of four and from all appearances had a pretty normal LDS upbringing. When I was about 12, I was praying that what had been happening to me, if it wasn't right, that my oldest brother would not go on his mission. And for about a year, year and a half, there had been sexual abuse. I thought maybe I was kind of crazy, that I was making things up. I didn't dare tell anyone because why would I say something like that about my older brother? Then he left on his mission. At that point, I decided that 
I must be crazy and that God didn't care about me. And it totally put me on a really intense and destructive internal trajectory for my teenage years. When I look at the statistics of what happens to girls who are sexually abused and the paths that they take, I was not a sexually promiscuous teenager. I did not do drugs and alcohol. I did not do self-harming, but I was completely unmoored. I had no idea where the foundation was to stand on. A lot of the teachings of the church, eternal families, and we're a happy family, and all of that kind of stuff, I, I didn't know what to think or believe anymore because I was either making something up or this was huge and horrible and awful, and why wasn't anybody noticing? I finally told a few of my friends what had happened. And at this point, of course, my brother had come home from his mission and my two siblings in between us were off at college, but he was going to college while living at home. So it was me and him in the home together. While there was no more sexual abuse, he did hit me a few times and there was a lot of physical intimidation where he would like pick me up and dangle me over the stairwell. He was big enough that he could pick me up and do whatever he wanted. He had a lot of anger. And of course my parents just told him to stop bothering his sister, stop fighting kids kind of thing. I told my friends after my brother hit me because he bruised me pretty good. They were like, you know, you need to tell somebody it's like an adult. And I just decided finally, I feel like I'm going crazy. I'm gonna write this all down. And I left it in a pile of things on my desk in my room. It was not out on top. It was not super hidden away. But my mom searched my room and I came home from school that day to a typewritten letter from her. And in the letter, she told me that my brother had come to her before his mission. And she told him not to go to the bishop or that the bishop would drag my parents in or I don't know what. Like just that the whole thing is like, no, let's just not go there. Because we were a church going family on the surface, if that makes sense. The one real thing that they said that I remember distinctly was, what will the neighbors think? And I was like, is that what this is about? I grew up with my mom telling me that I was her baby girl. Growing up with that message from my mother and then finding out when I'm 16 that her pride and fear were more important was extremely devastating to me. So when I was 16, I quit going to church because I was like, why? What's the point here? Because you don't care and God doesn't care. The rug had been ripped out from underneath me and my whole world was completely in turmoil. I barely graduated from high school, but I was still able to get into college and go away to college. At the time that I applied and got accepted to go away to college, which was my way of getting out of the house, that was when my oldest brother transferred to that university. So I ended up going to my first year of university with him on campus. From what I understand, he did go talk to a bishop. As we understand it in our doctrine, repentance includes restitution. I do think they can make restitution. Yes. In 12-step, it's called living amends, where you live in such a way that you are indebted to this person. And throughout your life, you're making their life easier through any possible means. It takes acknowledgement. It takes humility. It takes honesty. It takes accountability. And it doesn't sound like any of those things have happened. No. And at one point, I do remember my mom sending my brother into my room to apologize to me. I just remember hearing her 
tell him in the kitchen, go apologize, and him coming down the hallway to my room, which of course is the last thing I want, is him in my room. So that was just kind of the dynamic. And I still felt like I was crazy. I went to one year of college with my brother and I ended up dropping out because I was not emotionally prepared to be a college student. I did not have the skill set academically or emotionally to do what I needed to do. I believe at this point, it's about the time that my sister was preparing to go on her mission. We hadn't really seen a lot of each other. I was downstairs. She came down. I do not remember what the conversation was about, but it turned into an argument. All of a sudden, she says, well, you're not the only one who's been abused. And of course, my world drops out from under me again. And she tells me that about the time when my brother came home from his mission, my dad started abusing my sister. My mother, from my perspective, treated my sister like the other woman, like my dad had had an affair and did not protect her children. Well, when she dropped the bombshell, I still didn't know what to do with myself. And my parents had told me that I couldn't go back to college until I could pay for it myself because of the fact that I had dropped out. So instead, I went to California and I was a nanny. And I wanted to have the gospel in my life again. I came back to Utah and came back to college and came back to the LDS church. And even in the turmoil in the years since then, I have realized that even with doubts, even with my anger, I have the peace and the joy that I need in my life that I wouldn't be. And I know because I've tried that other road. In the process of coming back, I didn't really bring anything up with my family or anything like that. I just simply tried to be a good daughter and a good sister and a good church member. I was married. And after a not super lengthy infertility road, I was blessed with two children. We ended up living in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And when my daughter was about to turn one, I kept trying to talk to my mom about the abuse in our family. And her only real response to me was, I'm sorry, I can't change the past. And so when my daughter was about to turn one year old, it kind of all hit me what the statistics are for girls that one in three or one in four is going to deal with abuse of some kind sexual abuse of some kind or sexual assault. There was an interaction with my brother where he had basically been fighting with his wife on the way up to my family's and he ended up yelling at me and it totally rattled me. It took me way back to all of his anger after his mission. I just realized that I was possibly letting my children be groomed for abuse in contact with my family. And also still being abused by your brother, right? I mean, him screaming and yelling at you is another abuse episode. Yes. And I walked in on my dad looking at what were celebrity bikini shots, which some people would just bat their eye at and say, that's nothing. But a 60-something-year-old man who is an active, faithful Let's LDS put faithful church member. Let's put faithful in quotes, looking. right? Faithful in, in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Faithful should and would have no reason, should not, would have no reason to be looking at something like that. Yep. 
And I remember going home and writing in it in my journal, because of course, you know, write it down, makes it real, talking to my husband about it, trying to somehow reason it away. Four years later, I caught my dad looking at some pretty serious porn on his computer. I knocked on the door, I rang the doorbell, my dad wears hearing aids, came in the house, walked down the hall, and there he was on the computer. He hurried and clicked out of everything, but my husband is a computer guy, and for a while he put a tracker on their computer, and then he says, no, I don't want this because we're just not going there. We saw some, some pretty serious stuff. I went over to their house, and I took all of the things that were mine that were still in their house. Photos of me, photos of my children, anything I had given them, cleaned all of my things out of their house. My husband and I discussed it. We got ready to put our house on the market and move out of my parents' neighborhood. I agonized and I cried and I felt bad that I was taking away my children's grandparents from them and all of that extended family, but I just knew I couldn't do this anymore. My family was not willing to talk about it. My family was not willing to put in place any kind of safeguards or anything like that. My parents have 12 grandchildren and would watch grandchildren overnight unsupervised. And also, it's not in the past. You have two abusers, neither of which have taken accountability, neither of which have made restitution, Yes. neither of which have been honest, accountable, or humble, and still using porn and still abusing you. So this is not in the past. But that's how my family sees it. So at the time, I was also in my parents' congregation, not just in their neighborhood. And I went to the bishop and to the state president to talk to them about my family's history. And both of them were, shall we say, unimpressed with what I was saying about my dad. They called him in and talked to him, which to me, in retrospect, felt like it was a good old boys network. They said, well, he took care of everything 30 years ago. Because my dad abused my sister and not me, I think they also blew me off. They did not see a connection between the pornography and the abuse. Especially if you can't talk about it. If there's been no restitution whatsoever, you know things haven't changed. It has to be out in the open. It has to be something that your family's able to talk about. It has to be something that he has looked at you in the eye and said, I acknowledge that you observed me viewing porn. These are the things that I've been doing to recover. I'm very sorry about the pain I've caused. You know what I mean? Like there has to be that. Otherwise they can't recover. And the only conversations I ever really had were with my mother. The room would freeze over. And what infuriated me the most was that when I really pushed on it, the only thing my dad told my siblings was that he had looked at some pictures. He did not tell my brothers that he had ever abused my sister. He just said, I looked at some pictures. Right. And that was it. Minimizing it. Yes. Yeah. This point, we cut off all contact with my family. We put our house on the market. And I was so angry that there was no way for me to be able to talk to my family without literally exploding. I did tell my parents I would like mediated counseling sessions. I would like my dad to go to 12-step and personal counseling. None of that happened. So about six months after I discovered my dad on the computer, we had sold our house and moved. And we did not 
move that far, but we did not tell them where we were moving to. We just simply moved out of this neighborhood and city that they were in and went on with life. It's been over five years since then, and I still struggle at times with, I'm a horrible daughter. About a month and a half ago, my mom called and left me a message to tell me that my dad went to the emergency room and was in the ICU. My middle brother ended up sending me an email saying, now's your chance to make things good. And I just was like, I don't want to be a callous jerk. I feel bad that my mom is so upset that my dad is so sick and I feel bad about all of this. But I walked away five years ago knowing that I was essentially walking away from everything, ever seeing them, ever talking to them again, any of that, because they also were asking me to forgive them. And I said, I forgive you, but forgiveness does not equal forgetting. Or trust. Yeah. And essentially, I felt like in response, my parents put in mission papers and went on a mission. And it felt like my brother going on his mission all over again. You know, my parents leaving on their mission, it was just like, that's it. I'm done. And my husband has said to me a couple of times, maybe you should reiterate again what you want from them. And I'm like, I have and I'm done because I can't force them. This is big on your website and in the services for betrayal trauma recovery is learning boundaries. It was huge, huge for me to realize what boundaries were and how to use them. And because we haven't had productive conversations ever, I'm like, I'm not allowing mm-hmm. you in. Liz, I know you and I know that if they came to you with honesty, accountability, humility, and said, we're ready we're ready to make a change. And these are the things we're going to do to do that. We would like to go to a counselor. You know, I know you'd be like, oh my word, my prayers are being answered. I've been praying for a healthy family. I would like a healthy relationship with them, but they are incapable of that. And me telling them over and over and over and over and over (laughs) is not doing it. And that's how I felt with my ex too. Like you can only tell them what you need for so long and then any interaction with them is more or less setting yourself up for more abuse. God is a God of boundaries and you have discovered this, but it doesn't make it any less painful. And I think that's the thing that people don't understand is that you're not doing it to punish them. You're doing it for your own safety Yeah, and the safety of your children. Yes. I had felt so broken for so long. I felt like at times my infertility was God punishing me because I was such an awful daughter. So I felt physically broken. I felt emotionally broken. I felt like I was spiritually broken because I had prayed and God didn't hear me. Parents are supposed to protect and love and nurture. And what did my parents do? They picked themselves over their children, going to church and all of the things that they are teaching at church about being loving, eternal families, sitting there feeling guilty that I don't want to be with my family eternally because they're scary. Now that you've set this boundary while they are continuing to be unhealthy, hoping and praying that they make different choices in the future, but under the circumstances, how are you feeling since you set the boundary? It's taken me a while. (laughs) When my dad went to the hospital a month and a half ago and my brother sent me that email and he said, now is your chance. I stewed for six hours and I realized, nope, now is not my chance. When I came back, 
to my family and Utah and the church. I gave it a good go from 97 to 2012. That was my chance. And I asked for things and I tried to open up conversations and dialogue and nobody wanted to do it. And so in 2012, I decided I was done and I walked away. No one in my family has really learned, understood, researched or whatever the effects of abuse or this betrayal or any of that. They have seen ecclesiastical leaders. That is it. They have done what is required technically by their ecclesiastical leaders. But no, because they haven't made restitution. You know, I think the really interesting thing is the victim gets blamed in abuse, right? Yes. So your brother texts you and says, this is your chance, which is so ironic because it's your dad's chance. He is the one that has to do it. It's not your chance. It's continually and forever and every day and every minute of every day, your father's chance. Yes. And he's not taking it. And because he's not humble, accountable, honest, and willing to submit to God's will, you have set a boundary and will continue to set it. And if he is not going to take the quote unquote chance to repent, you are not going to put yourself in an unsafe situation. That is what it is. I think that's so interesting that the victims and the perpetrators get so mixed up with people, you know, like, because obviously your family has painted you in the perpetrator role where you're the victim because they don't get it. That's what makes them unsafe. Because church has been a big part of my family's culture, but not necessarily gospel. I think that plays into their, yep, she's just rattling the cage. She's just trying to cause problems. It's always, you know, just calm down. Just leave us alone. Why are you so worried about this? Well, it's sad because your mom's a victim too. Knowing her, that makes me very sad. But I am so proud of you that you have made the difficult and heart-wrenching decision to set this boundary with your unhealthy family and that you can move forward in peace in spite of the pain and the sadness that you feel about your family, making the life that is healthy for you and your own kids now. And it's also difficult because lots of people probably say things to you like, well, isn't that extreme? Going to China with you so long ago, I never would have guessed this. And I think that that's how abuse is. It's rampant in so many families. These are people who attend church. And I'm proud of you for protecting yourself and getting to safety rather than worrying about what it looks like on the outside. And that is what it's going to require to stop pornography and to stop the abuse caused by pornography, the sexual abuse and the emotional abuse for all of us to take a stand. It's painful and it's not fun. It's not fun at all, but it does bring us safety and peace. So Liz, I appreciate your courage and sharing your story today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for everything you're doing, Anne. In spite of not being protected by her bishop and stake president, Liz has decided to remain active in the church. I had that same experience where I was emotionally abused by a bishop and continue to remain active. For me, obeying the commandments and continuing to read my scriptures and pray has really brought me a lot of peace. If you've had the experience of being traumatized by the church culture or leaders in the church, please schedule an individual session with Coach Joy. 
Also, women who have been through all different types of scenarios but understand what you are going through are members of the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. We have a session every day and some days have multiple sessions. So please check out our website, btr.org, to see the session schedule. As always, if this podcast is helpful to you, please make a recurring donation. Go to btr.org, scroll down to the bottom, and click on the button that says, Make a Donation. Just set it and forget it. It helps us to bring this podcast free of charge to women all over the world. Similarly, to help more women find it, please rate this podcast on your podcasting app. And until next week, stay safe out there.